This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. All public offerings are made possible by the kind donations from people like you. And thank you for coming. Uh, you know, I, I live across the street from the San Francisco Zen Center. So when I went to go practice, I walk across the street, literally. And um, as I was driving here this evening from San Francisco, you know, and there was some kind of accident on the road, and so it took quite a bit longer than I anticipated. And it made me appreciate the luxury of living across the street from a practice center. So thank you for whatever kind of journey or drive you had to make for coming. Um, What I planned to talk about this evening was um, practicing in the midst of an active life. Um, And I'd like to start with this poem by Mary Oliver, which she courageously called what I've learned so far. Meditation is old and honorable. So why should I not sit every morning of my life on the hillside looking into the shining world? Because properly attended to, delight as well as havoc is suggestion. Can one be passionate about the just, the ideal, the sublime, and the holy, and yet not commit to labor in its cause? I don't think so. All summations have a, have a beginning. All effect has a story. All kindness begins with the sown seed. Thought buds towards radiance. The gospel of light is the crossroads of indolence or action. I thought that last line was just amazing. The gospel of light is the crossroads of indolence or action, or indolence and action. You know, there's two ways we could think about the proposition of this poem. And one would be the contemplative life versus or in relationship to the act of life, entering the world and being of service. And then another way is holding those two parts of ourself, you know, that... that, um, what we might call that inner journey, that exploration of the nature of self, of the, of the formation of our own psychology, our habits, of, of energy, of physiology, of emotion, of thought. And the outer journey, how do we engage the world? How do we... Um, engage the world in a purposeful way. 
Recently, I was in, in Europe, in Slovenia, part of old Yugoslavia, and at one point it was a deeply Christian country, and so on every little hilltop there's a church, you know, and I was thinking of, you know, and at various times I couldn't quite figure out how, how often, but certainly at noon and at 6 p.m., Actually, at 7 a.m. at noon and 6 p.m., all the church bells rang. You know? And I was thinking of the word vocation, you know, to be called. You know? That the world calls us. That the request of practice calls us into this inner journey and this outer journey. And, uh, so that's what I'd like to talk about this evening. Maybe in concise form, what's happening now and what is it to practice with it? Huh? And, and then, interestingly, how can that be underneath the many things that happen in our life you know how can there be some calling to practice you know? what's happening now what's happening now when there's a traffic accident and despite your notion that you left in good time you're going to arrive at your destination a little late, or a lot late, depending on how big the accident is. Uh, this afternoon I was getting gas, and it was one of those pay in advance, and pay cash. Um, and I thought I gave the guy $30. And, but the pump get, kept going to 31 and then I wasn't sure if um, somehow or another I'd managed to, I don't know, game the system <laughs> and get more than I'd paid for. <laughs> so I went over to the cashier and I said, you know, I just got 31. He says, I know you gave me 31 even though you only thought you gave me 30. And it was this sweet moment of... Um, recognizing that we're both trying to do the right thing. You know. And it was a sweet moment. I felt taken care of. You know. Uh, he could, without me ever knowing, or anyone else ever knowing, just put that dollar in his pocket. Um, but he didn't. And it was a sweet exchange. You know. Oh, you and I are both trying to do the right thing. Um, what's happening and what is it to practice with it? You know? yeah. 
not so much that we have an exhaustive prescription as to what it is to practice with it, but more that our inner work ripens us in a way that sets up a sensibility. You know, that uh, that something in us prompts us to ask, hopefully, creatively, generously, kindly, patiently, what is it to practice with this? And I'd like to mention two lists in Buddhism. Um, One is five five faculties, what we could consider um, five capacities within that that we cultivate to enable awareness. And then the other one is uh, the five hindrances. Could I ask for a show of hands how many people know what the five hindrances are? Good. <laughs> um. And I think in a way, they're a challenging teaching because um, to look at that aspect of ourselves, where we get in our own way, where we thwart the capacity for groundedness, um, presence, and that availability for the moment. Some agenda thwarts that process. It hinders it. And, and I think they're a challenge because um, we're not that simple, you know. We, the, the, we do have these impulses, but then they, they create their own structure with, within our being, you know, within our patterns of being and within our psychological being. But even so, they can be enormously instructive. They can help us, um, in a way, get underneath an urgent storyline or narrative, or even a mood or emotion. You know, I was talking to someone this morning on a one-on-one interview, and they started to cry. And we were just exploring, well, how do you feel? And the person said, well, obviously I'm feeling a lot or I wouldn't be crying. But, you know, I don't really know what I'm feeling. Hmm? Um... a kind of exploration that helps us to get in touch with ourselves 
that we start to make sense of ourselves, to ourselves. And we did indeed sit there and discuss it for about 30, 40 minutes, and something became evident. So what's happening now can range from the phenomena of the moment, the, the mental description of what's going on, the emotional content, the, the way in which we're moved and stirred by it, how it gets associated with our psychological being. Um, And then Buddhism offers this um, five-point reference. You know, I've often thought that the word hindrance has a limited usefulness. You know, maybe in a way, it 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 has too much of an inclination of um, being a negative statement. You know, a hindrance. Um, We could say that in the human condition there's a strong impulse towards energetic engagement. You know, if, if you think of the, the many things that uh, as humans we're inclined to do, what just came to my mind was a couple of weeks ago, um, someone in his mid-twenties who, I forget what you call it, I think they call it base jumping. You leap off high cliffs and then you glide through the air. And it's extremely dangerous. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, he died. And it, it reminded me that once one of these young men came to the Zen Center, um, to live there for a while and I got to talking to him and he was saying well this is what I do I do it professionally I jump off these cliffs and you know and they videotape it and and I get paid to do it and every now and then one of my buddies miscalculates and dies he said but it's enormously energizing when you're, gli- when you're leaping and you're attempting to clear this edge so you can glide down a thousand feet and hopefully land without breaking both legs, <laughs> there's an enormous energy rush. And he was saying, that energy rush keeps me alert and attentive for days. Um, but I thought maybe meditation could provide me <laughs> with, with, a, with a non-life-threatening way to do the same thing. <laughs> anyway, sadly, one such young man uh, did indeed catch a rock on his way down and uh, was killed.
within Buddhism, this notion of energy, virya, um, that each engagement is in the engagement energizing, you know? And, and, and we can think of, um, you know, the first hindrance is the attraction to pleasure that arises through the senses. You know? Pleasure arises through the senses when the experience is energized. You know? And, and, and of course, in, in, in the workings and the calculations of our being, you know, like when we eat food, if a little is delicious, well then a lot will be fantastically delicious. <laughs> and of course it's not. <laughs> um, but delicious is an energizing experience. And the energy part of the calculation is the presence of engagement. And, and so, the hindrance is when we subvert it into something we think we can take and own rather than give ourselves to. It's the giving, it's the being part of that's energizing. It's the impulse to want to own it and have it and keep it and control it. That's when it becomes corrupted. And, and, and so in the teaching, it's not the desire, it's not that impulse that's the problem. It's how we relate to it, you know, how, and, and how do we discover to be skillful with it? You know? And then how can we carry that in, into our lives, in, into the ways um, our desire plays out, not only in the realm of our senses, but just the notions we may create within ourselves of, um, you know, what is the perfect relationship that I desire? You know, it will be like this. The other person will be perfect. <laughs> We will be soulmates. <laughs> and, uh, and then the interesting way in which that can um, inspire us to give ourselves to relationship and then it can also be corrupting. You know, sadly, it turns out the other person isn't perfect. <laughs> they're, they're not everything we wanted them to be. Um, 
And then, of course, in the realm of relationships, this wonderful maturation of our own sensibilities to um, discover how to appreciate another human being for who they are rather than what we've conjured up as our perfect dream. You know, it's part of, can be its own gift. And in doing so, the willingness, the capacity to give ourselves to other is enlivened, is energized. So the many ways we we can look at the appetites of life, And, and, and rather than sort of think in some ways they are the problem, um, see that in some way they offer a doorway to engagement, a doorway to awakening, awareness in the moment. Um, and there's this human tendency towards corrupting that experience. But if we can hold it as a basic human tendency to be explored as carefully as possible, it it alleviates some of the burden of good and bad, you know, right and wrong. It, it can be a way to unpack the mystery of being the person we are. How can we engage that intrigue? What is so appealing? And what is it to be in the throes of something that's appealing? And then second hindrance is the antithesis of that. It, it, it's almost like the fear of engagement and giving over to engagement because you can't quite tell what's going to happen. You know? When you give over it's a different experience from taking and owning and having and controlling. And how that plays out in our life. You know? How does disappointment sour into resentment? Betrayal, disillusionment. When things don't go the way we want them to. How when we're stuck in the traffic and not getting to some important place we're supposed to get to, how do we not tense up? How do you still appreciate the blue sky and the evening light?
as the conversation evolved with this person who was crying this morning, you know, we started to talk about um, in, in very simple, direct terms, there's always something wrong with our life. There's always something about it that you, you would actually prefer if it was different. You know? Maybe not always, but a good deal of the time. Uh, there can be a lingering point of distress or dissatisfaction. Yeah. And then we can energize that. We, we we can energize that. We can hold it like a mantra that we keep repeating. Yeah. We we can catch ourselves holding a resentment towards someone that then becomes definitive as of who they are. And the other qualities of their being um, become irrelevant. And so, what's happening? Can we study that? Can, Can we see how it comes together? Can we see how within our own workings it has a relevance, you know. Can we learn about ourselves in a way where we see how that relevance works within our being? How amazing that we should hold some particular about someone as the definitive expression of who they are. And then the third one and the fourth one. The third one is how in the multitude of experiences and, and I would say this, in the unfinished business of our life, you know, we have an experience and it's, we haven't come to terms with it. It's still lingering around, it's still rattling around our being. And then we have a series of these. And they become like a burden. Like sometimes you sit down to meditate. There's a, a, a Sufi poet, Hafiz. And Hafiz would refer to the multitude of concerns we have as the 10,000 idiots. <laughs> he, he didn't say it in a kind of derogatory way. It was actually a very playful way he would talk about it. That these voices would come up and clamor. Like so we just sit down to meditate and all these voices are uh, popping up. Sometimes like a chorus, like a mood. 
And then that brings up the hindrance of restlessness and agitation. And then sometimes, like a heavy weight, like a burden, the body becomes heavy, the mind becomes heavy. Now we tend towards numbing out, getting sluggish. And these are challenging, you know? And often they're, they're signals. The, the, the signals that something in our life, in an accumulative way, is asking for attention. Huh? The accumulation of experiences is creating a disposition that... that has a, um, an abiding to it. Either way, sluggish or restless. Hmm? And then what is it to practice with it? Hmm. Can we get in touch with the physiology of it? Can we get in touch with the psychology of it? Um, Maybe it's evident, maybe it's mysterious, like the person this morning starting to cry. Turned out the person felt burdened by a number of issues that felt poignant and difficult. And what is it to practice with it? No, in one t in one way we can say, when the dominant response is agitation, distress, stabilization, release, ease, you know, physiologically, psychologically, emotionally, you know, that that notion of the dharma as appropriate medicine. That, that way in which, as we become skillful with ourself, as our practice becomes skillful, it will become more of an attractive proposition rather than just something that our mind says, this is what I should do. And then the sluggishness can be, um, you know, quite a challenge in, in that... It, it, it's, it's close to numbing out or dissociation. And, and, and usually um, an effort in connecting, energizing, doing something vigorous, leading to an exploration. Hmm. What is it that's going on that stirs up that response? And then hopefully our exploration has both patience and kindness in it. Hmm? This, this way, 
in which when we're skillful with ourselves, awareness becomes an attractive proposition. You know, in the five faculties that I'm about to mention very quickly, because we're running out of time, <laughs> is uh, the first faculty is trust. You know? And in some ways, the trust is you trusting your own engagement in practice. So as we explore the workings of the self, this patience and kindness um, has both its compassionate but also its skillful generosity. And then the fifth faculty is uh, doubt. We want to know. We want to be certain. Am I doing the right thing? Um, life does not offer us absolute certainty. I teach a course here with, with Gil and Jennifer Block. So I come down once a month. So I've driven this road from San Francisco many times. So I thought I knew pretty well how long it took to get here. You know? And I actually was thinking, well, it'd be nice to get there a little bit early. You know? That would be just a nice way to do it. Um, but that's not what happened. You know? <laughs> certainty, the assurance that everything will be fine. Yeah? The conviction, this is the person for me and everything will be perfect. Well, maybe. <laughs> but, but how that um, demand has its own way of being corrupt. You know? Of course we should explore and discover and learn from our experience. But, but when we demand a certainty and experience how it's ephemeral, it's elusive, um, there will be doubt. And then especially in the world of Zen, we, we talk about great doubt. And that, that way that, that rather than search for certainty, appreciate the great mystery of life, that life's always creating itself, even our own human existence. Yeah? Each time we sit down to sit, 
all the amazing thoughts and feelings and images and memories and anticipations that come up for us. Can they be met with uh, an appreciative curiosity? And how that can be a very mobile thing you know, as we go through our day, watching our own responses, watching what kind of situations we just roll with and what ones we've become resistant to. You know? Watching the play of our engagement and our energy. And then so the first factor is trust. Then the second factor is energy. Uh, you know, one way we can say, one way to explore energy, a little bit hard to do in our daily life, but we can do it, um, is if we can pause, notice, make contact, and open up to just experiencing beyond the story, that beyond the way we've conceptualized and defined the situation. And sometimes this is a very helpful practice, you know, that moment of pause, notice, acknowledge, contact, experience. To carry that as a way to make this deeper engagement into things. And then it's very helpful if we can link it to an energetic involvement, either positive or negative either pleasant or unpleasant. Like that cashier who just rung up the extra dollar. That was a sweet, energetic moment. And then it was accompanied by, oh yes, this is the joy of practice. This is the giving and receiving, the mutual support. So simple when it happens, and and then sometimes it seems so scarce in our world. Um, But then even when we have a moment of um, aversion, What are we averse to? And how is it to be in a moment of aversion? How does the body react? How does the mind react? Are there habits of emotion that accumulate around it? And and touching the experience at the center of it, we can touch the energy. Then the third factor is um, music. No. (laughs) 
It's okay. I know the feeling. Um, the third factor is mindfulness. You know, that, that open attention that keeps us receptive to what's going on. And again, these moments of interjecting pause and awareness are so helpful. Then the fourth factor is when that becomes a continuous process, continuous contact. And, and, And more and more our um, our workings are coming up into consciousness and not not simply subconscious activity that then we experience the consequence of and then what that creates that continuous contact creates its own um, rather than experiencing the world according to me, we experience the world illuminated by awareness. And it's its own kind of revelation. So, I've run out of time. But just to say, you know, both of these yeah. And and how do we persuade ourselves that they um, support our life? How do we persuade ourselves that looking at these aspects of our human existence is the gate of liberation? Is this is the process by which we will? be less afflicted by our human life. This is the process by which we will make more sense to ourselves, that the world will make more sense to us. Doesn't mean it will be the way we want it to be. (laughs) No, the world will be the way the world is. And we will be the way we are, you know. Our basic response happens in a fraction of a second, faster, quite a bit faster than our cognitive mind. Um, but as, as it's held in awareness, it becomes more of a teaching. And how do we coach ourselves into carrying this with us? As a carrying awareness with us as a process that, that actually supports the human life, that lets us um, engage in a way that our life is an unfolding rather than an unfolding like this rather than a narrowing you know so let me end by reading this poem again
by Mary Oliver. What I've learned so far. Meditation is old and honorable. So why should I not sit every morning of my life on the hillside looking into the shining world? When you hear it like that, it's hard to uh, reject it, isn't it? Why should I not sit every morning of my life on the hillside looking into the shining world? Because properly attended to, delight as well as havoc is suggestion. Delight, desire, as well as havoc, as well as chaos, reversion, is what's being conjured up. Can one be passionate about the just, the ideal, the sublime, and the holy, and not commit to labor in its cause? I don't think so. Can we connect to this world, to this being, to all beings, and sustain some kind of indifference? To not be moved, to join it, be part of it. All summations have a beginning. All effect has a story. All kindness begins with the sown seed. Um, we begin. We connect. We see the human condition. And it's an opportunity for patience and kindness, understanding, tolerance, compassion. Thought buds toward radiance. We conjure up the world every moment. How completely amazing. And we have the opportunity to engage it, to learn from it, to be delighted by it. The gospel of light is the crossroads of indolence or action. The crossroads of holding still and experiencing what is and wholehearted engagement in action. It's not an either or, it's a both and. it's, It's a dance between the two. If there's no insight into who we are and how we are, our actions have no ground. If we don't engage the world, our practice is just, you know, abstract. It's an uninvolved uh, notion. It's not actualized. So the combination of the two. Okay. So thank you very much.